0: So this morning, we do continue on in this letter of Galatians. This is our third week now. And two weeks ago, as we started, we got to see what Paul said in the greeting of this letter. And then last week, we began the body of the letter. And what we saw last week, to start off the body of this letter, wasn't a paragraph about thanksgiving, which would be more typical of Paul. Instead, what we saw in verses 6 through 9 was a few firm statements about the seriousness of turning from the true gospel message, and especially about getting the message wrong and being a false messenger. And on that paragraph last week, it was, and it still is, a hard passage. And it's hard because as we talked about, on the one hand, we, especially in our culture, want to be loving and compassionate Toward all people. And and that's a good thing, as we should always want to be loving and compassionate in what we say and in what we believe. And though, what we also saw last week was that in love, we also need to understand from God and His Word that there is only one true message about Jesus. And we say this not because we just care about being right nor because it's just some doctrine we want to hold. Instead, it's because getting the message wrong really matters, both for God's glory, because the message represents Him, and for the welfare of the world, because the true message of Jesus is what we in the whole world so desperately needs. And as a reminder, remember the false message that was being taught in Galatia that sparked the writing of this letter wasn't that far off, from the true gospel because the true gospel in a nutshell is about jesus christ the son of god coming living dying for sinners rising again coming back one day and it's about us trusting him for that salvation and peace and so that's the true gospel and yet all that they were doing in galatia was they were agreeing with all of that but then they were adding the necessity of doing these certain works in order to be right with God, especially Jewish works back then. And yet, as we saw last week, with it being just that off, Paul said in verses 6 and 7 that by believing that message, by adding our doings to what Jesus has done in salvation, they were, quote, deserting God. And yet also still Paul said in verses 8 and 9 that anyone teaching such a message like that will be a curse meaning given over to God for proper judgment. And so that's what we've seen. And one last thing on this before we do move on to our text this morning. On all that, let me also just say that perhaps I wasn't as clear about this last week if you were here, but as we continue on this topic this morning and especially as we continue on it throughout Galatians, let me be clear that it is hard to judge from afar exactly what one individual professing believer actually believes in all this about the gospel, and if they are genuinely saved or not. And that's why, even here in Galatia, I think Paul still thinks that some of these people are genuine Christians, just temporarily being deceived. And it's also why I do think the Bible leads lead us to think that in places, even now, where a seriously false gospel is still being taught, like in mainline churches or in Catholic teaching, where many of the aspects are almost exactly the same of what was going on here in Galatia, it still is true that people can be there and genuinely know Jesus and be saved. But importantly, first, what is still really serious in such examples is the messengers who promulgate such a false message. Because remember, if you are here last week, it was the messengers that God's Word is specifically addressing here. But then second, and I think most important, we need to know that someone can really know Jesus and be saved in such a setting, but only because, by God's grace, they don't rely on their works, even though they're taught to. And instead, they genuinely trust in Jesus for their salvation. In other words, because in their mind, in their heart, they still are actually believing and relying on Jesus alone. Now, that's rarer in such settings because the people are sadly taught to rely on Jesus plus doing all these works for their salvation. But it can, and I think still does, happen. And finally on this, I hope you know that this then really is why in history the Protestant Reformation happened. Because people who loved the Bible and loved God and loved other people saw that this was such a big deal according to God's word. And this then is why we really should encourage people to read the Bible for themselves, right? And to go to churches where the true gospel is taught, because this isn't just doctrine. Instead, it really does matter, possibly for their salvation and especially for their peace, which we talked about last week. That then finally does bring us to this week. So, so Paul was firm in verses 6 through 9. And as I said last week, some of the reasons for this are because false teaching misrepresents Jesus, because it leads people to believing a wrong message, because it troubles. But now for this week, we get to dig into what Paul says right after that intense paragraph in verses 6 through 9. And here we'll see him continue to give some reasons why he's so resolute about this gospel message. Which brings us to our outline of how we'll go through our time together this morning. So what we'll see in these verses is basically Paul giving two reasons for why he's so adamant about the true gospel versus any false gospel. Two reasons. And those two reasons then very simply will be our two sections this morning. And so first, we'll see his first reason why he's so adamant about the true gospel in verse 10. And then second, we'll see his second reason in verses 11 and 12. And so that is our simple outline. And in it all, in essence, we're asking, why, Paul, are you so serious about this true message of Jesus and against any false gospel? And for us, then, we're also asking, and why should we, as Christians, care so much about this message? And to answer that, we're going to see two reasons from God's word. But all that said, let's then begin our first section and see the first reason why Paul is so adamant about this one true gospel. Remember, this is what Paul decides to say right after that intense paragraph in verses 6-9. through nine. For this will be in in verse 10. So look down at your Bibles, Galatians 1, verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So as you can see in the first word there, This verse starts with that really important word, for, or because. And this truly is an important word, not only here, but in the whole Bible. Because as you might have noticed, and I think I've said this before here at this church, so many verses, even famous Bible verses, start with this word, for. For God so loved the world. For the wages of sin is death. For to me to live is Christ and die is gain. For I know the plans I have for you, and the list could go on. And that's all because verses in the Bible aren't just random thoughts or promises, but they connect to and they explain other thoughts. And, and so it is here. And so this verse starts with for or because. And this means that the, questions, it's, the question it's essentially answering, again, is why, Paul, do you speak so firmly like you just said in verses 6 through 9? Why are you talking like this? And his answer is for, because. Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. And so as you can see there, there's really then three things involved in Paul's reason in this first verse. Three things, one in each of those sentences. First, the thought of gaining approval. Second, that idea of pleasing. And third is the importance of being a servant of Christ. And so let's take those one at a time and see why they were so important for Paul and why they are for us as well. So Paul's first statement, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? And of course, the rhetorical answer is of God. But when we hear that, we may think, that's strange. I mean, doesn't he and don't we in Christ already have God's approval? And the answer is, Absolutely. And, and Paul knew that. And in fact, the truth that we are approved in Christ alone by grace through faith and not by anything we do is the gospel Paul is being so adamant about. And so that's true. But then what's also true is that once you're in Christ, once you're right with God, what we still do matters. Not because it has any impact on if we'll be right with God or not. Not because we can merit God's favors, but instead because of our experienced relationship with Him. And that's not only true of the idea of approval, but it's true of the idea of pleasing in the next sentence as well. And this is why theologians over time have come up with these two categories to explain all of this, which I really commend to you, and this is something I use in my mind and my prayer life all the time. And those two categories are union versus communion. Union and communion. And here's what I mean. First, as for the idea of our union with Christ or union with God, this refers to the essence of the gospel, that by grace, through faith alone, we are once and for all unified to Christ, and that union, that relationship, can never be broken. And therefore, for us as God's people, whether we sin or don't sin, whether we do a lot of good works or not a lot of good works, whether we do this or that, the idea of union is that if you are Jesus's, you now and forever are always Jesus's. Or perhaps the best way to think about it is thinking in terms of God's family. If you're in Christ, no matter what you do, God is still your father now and forever. And so now because of what Jesus did for you, there is therefore now no condemnation. So that's the idea of union, secure union. But then as for communion with Christ or communion with God, this is then taking the Bible's concepts of the experienced personal relationship that we then have with the God that we're united to. Right? And it's then this that can, in a sense, fluctuate. Not because we can go in and out of God's family But because even as Christians, we in God's family, according to God's word, can face things like the Father's discipline when we sin. Or we can grieve the Holy Spirit within us. Or positively, we're told to draw near to God, and he will draw near to us in a sense. And so that's what I think Paul is getting at with this idea of seeking God's approval. Just like once you're saved, you can face the Father's discipline, so also by grace, once you're saved, you can do works that get God's fatherly approval in your communion with him. That being said, perhaps just as important on this first sentence here is that, as you can see, Paul doesn't just say he wants to see God's approval, but he's very clear he does not seek man's approval. And it's actually this that I think is what led Paul to talk about approval here anyway. Because we might wonder, I mean, after verses 6 through 9, I'm talking about false teachers and the false gospel. Why does Paul then right away in his thought go to the idea of approval? Well, if you think about it, it's probably because what's often the case with false teaching, false teaching about Jesus is that it continues to spread because of the seeking of the approval of other people. Right? Looking not to offend. Or not wanting to sound this way or that way. Or allowing people to add whatever they think is best. Or, 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 emph- or overemphasizing certain truths because you know people will like you for it. Or whatever. But you can understand, right? That often what happens is it's seeking man's approval that leads to the message being changed. So that's the first thing Paul says. He's adamant about the true gospel in verses 6-9 through nine because ultimately he's not seeking man's approval. He's seeking God's. That then leads to the second and shortest sentence in verse 10 there, quote, or am I trying to please man? And implied there, of course, is that he isn't trying to please please man, but he's trying to please God. And again, this is similar to the idea of approval, right? Because even Christians sometimes ask, and it's a good question, can I really please God? And the answer to that from the Bible brings us back to our ideas of union and communion, which is why they're so helpful. Because by asking the question, can I really please God, if you mean by that, can I make God so happy in such a way that it then makes up for my sins and makes me right with him? Then of course, the answer in the Bible is a resounding no, right? Because it's a huge part of the gospel. We cannot make up for our sins like that. That's why we need to trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, for our union. But if, the, if by the can I please God question, you mean now that I'm totally secure and saved in Christ, can what I do please God or not please God in a sense? The answer from the Bible is a resounding yes. For example, 2 Corinthians 5.9, we make it our aim to please God. In Ephesians 5.10, we try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And as you can see, this then fits with the idea of communion. And so as a quick application for us then, for those of us who are here and do know Jesus, we should resonate with this verse because we also should want to please God, right? Make our Father happy. Not because we're afraid that He'll forsake us and cast us out of His family if we don't please Him enough, because that's not true. That can't happen in Christ but instead simply because we love him. Yet again, with all that said, as with the idea of approval, this point about pleasing man here, as you can probably see, is primarily here because of what the false teachers were probably doing. And as you can see on this, it's interesting, Paul subtly in this verse gets personal here. Because notice in the next sentence there in verse 10, he writes, if I were still trying to please man... And this shows us that that he understands this because he's been there. He understands that so much of being religious and trying to do things for God can come not from a genuine desire to please God, but an inward desire to please man. And for all of us, myself included, it's really good for us here to take a minute and realize that as well because we can go to church, we can do good works, We can talk the right talk. We can try to be moral. We can seek to raise our kids in the faith. We can stand up for morality in the culture. We can even talk about Jesus and his gospel. We can do all that. And yet in our hearts, we can really be doing it because of how it makes us look to other people. And I know that may sound strange because at first we might think, no way it'd be so much easier to not be a Christian in this culture. And in part, that's true, just like it was true for them back in the Roman times. But also, that's not fully the case. And we all know it. Because we all know the pleasure and even recognition that we can get from actually being religious or godly when others aren't. Or being the moral and right one when we know that others aren't or being the ones who are fighting for God all because of how it's making us look and so like in Paul's life before his conversion we need to realize that the subtle desire to please man and get man's approval might still be in us. But as Christians, even though we may struggle against that, we also still say what Paul is saying here in verse 10, yet ultimately, I'm no longer seeking to please people. Instead, I'm really trying to please God. Which brings us to the third sentence there in verse 10. And it's here that Paul gives a more underlying reason for all of this. So why does he talk the way he does in verses 6-9 through about the firmness of the gospel? Well, because he's seeking to please God and get God's approval. But then finally... In that last sentence there, he's doing all this because he's simply a servant of Christ. <laughs> and it's this that I actually think is the strongest of all those three things in this verse. And I say that because notice how Paul pits pleasing man and serving Christ against each other here. And this is actually very similar to what Jesus did in Matthew 6:24. Because there, as you might know, Jesus boldly said famously. You cannot serve both God and money. Meaning it is impossible, according to our Lord, to serve God and money. You cannot do it. And so in the same vein, in Galatians 1.10 here, Paul is saying that about serving Christ and pleasing man. He says, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And so the question for us is, why is this? Why is this the case in Jesus' teaching in Matthew 6 where we cannot serve God and money? And why is it the case here in Paul's teaching where we cannot please man and serve Christ? Well, it's because if you think about it, what this shows us is that in both Jesus' and Paul's teachings, what they're therefore really getting at is the issue of ultimate allegiance and ultimate authority. Ultimate allegiance and ultimate authority. Meaning, we each need to ask ourselves, what really is number one in my mind, in my heart, in my life? Is it money? Is it man? Is it something else? Or is it Christ? Is it God? It's by answering that question that then has numerous applications for how you act and how you live. Which brings us finally, before we move on to our second section, to really then why I think... Paul ends with this idea of being a servant here in verse 10. So remember, Paul just wrote verses 6 through 9. That was last week for us, but it was his last breath for him. And there he was intense about turning from the true gospel and about there's only one true message. And remember, last week, and we keep saying that we all thus, therefore as well, must believe that there's only one true gospel about Jesus Christ. But that being said, bring yourself back to Paul here and why he says he's a servant. Because we might hear all that from verses 6 through 9 and think, man, I bet Paul just loves being brazen like that. I bet he loves just asserting his apostolic authority. But actually, I don't really think he does. And I say that because first, we know from elsewhere in his writings, like Romans 9 or Philippians 3, that when Paul's intense like this, he often says he's writing what he's writing with anguish or with tears, meaning this isn't easy for him. But also, we know this because, as we talked about before, he never elsewhere starts off his letters like the way he does here in Galatians. He never just says in verse 1 of his letters that he's an apostle. Instead, he usually says at the beginning of his letters that he's also a servant of Christ. And so he's never firm like this to start off his letters, only here in Galatians. But the question is, but why? Why be so firm? And that's why I love the end of verse 10 here because it shows us that Paul is essentially looking at all this, at loving the true gospel and having to say what he has to say about Jesus in the midst of false teaching and about the importance of Jesus' gospel. And he's thinking, I'm just his servant. And to be clear, that word servant probably would be better translated as bond servant because it was someone owned by somebody else back in Roman times. And so Paul is saying that he's writing what he's writing about this one true gospel because, yes, he's seeking God's approval. And, yes, he's trying to please God, but also because he knows he's owned by Jesus. He's just Jesus' servant serving him. And that's really why I, I was studying this. I began to love more than ever Galatians 1.10 here because, because also think of it this way. So as I said a minute ago, Paul almost never, he, oh, excuse me, he almost always right away in verse 1 of his letters starts off with this idea of being a servant of Christ. He almost always starts his, his letters like that. And yet here in Galatians, he doesn't do that until he gets to verse 10. And so the question is, why, does, why doesn't he say that in verse 1? And why does he say it in verse 10? I think the reason is, if you want to think along with him, yes, he had to painfully assert his apostolic authority to begin this letter. Because the truth is, any false teaching is a big deal. But then, when he's explaining why he needed to do it, and why he's so adamant about the true gospel, he doesn't again bring up his apostleship. He could have. He, he could have said there, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be an apostle of Christ. But instead of that, he talks about being a mere servant here, just like you and I are. And so in a, sen- in a sense, he's, he's looking at all this and he's saying, look, I-, I know this might be hard to hear about the one true gospel in verses six through nine, just like it might be for us. But I'm just, a s- I'm just serving Christ. Right? He owns me. And this is his message. Yes, I'm an apostle, but I'm not that special. I'm just his servant. And so I know it might make people upset to say that there's only one true gospel message, but, quote, if I were still trying to please man, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. And brothers and sisters, the same is for you and I and for why we love and believe and sometimes have to stand up for the one true gospel of Jesus. And so that's Paul's first reason in verse 10. But that then does lead us to verses 11 and 12. And here we'll see, see Paul give his second reason for why he's so adamant about the true gospel. And as we read this, notice again that the first word of verse 11 is that word for or because, meaning Paul is continuing his logical reasoning and argument. And so let's read those now. Look down at your Bibles, verses 11 and 12. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So what's his reason for all that he said before this? Well, in verse 11, it's for, because he really wants them to know that this gospel he's proclaiming is not man's gospel. So think about it. Yes, he was firm in verses 6 through 9, but really he wants them to know it's not really him who has this idea against these false teachers and what they're teaching nor is it any other man. Instead, it's God. This gospel message is God's message. And, and how does he know this? Well, that's where verse 12 comes in. And again, there's another four to start off this verse. So how does Paul know that this is God's message? Well, he says, verse 12, four, because he didn't receive this gospel from any man, nor was he just taught it, but he received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ, meaning Jesus Christ revealed it to him. And now that's a huge claim. (laughs) And from here on out in this paragraph and all the way through halfway in chapter 2, Paul will defend that claim with his story. And we'll get into that next week. But for now, I want us to stop and realize what Paul just said. Because I do think it's supposed to be climactic here. Because thus far, he's been strong about his true gospel, right? Why? Because he's seeking God's approval and trying to please man and serve Christ. And why? Because this isn't his gospel, but it's God's. But finally, and climactically, we may ask, and yet, how do you know that, Paul? (laughs) I mean, how do you know that this is really God's gospel? And his answer is, because Jesus revealed it to me. (laughs) If you think about it, we have to say, if that's true then argument over, (laughs) right? Proof done. And to be clear, that word revelation is just a noun version of the word to reveal, and so it might sound fancy, but all it just means is something revealed, and therefore Paul is simply saying, this is God's gospel, Jesus' gospel, and I'm sure of that because Jesus revealed it to me. And so that's the claim. And taking a step back for a second, I think if we consider this, we'll see that this is the crucial point here for Paul and the crucial point for us. Not in the same way, because Jesus directly revealed his gospel to Paul, which is what made Paul an apostle. And yet still, for Paul and for us, we believe this gospel, this message, ultimately because this is Jesus' gospel, that Jesus himself revealed. And this is especially applicable because I know especially after last week, or maybe hearing what you're hearing this morning, if you're sitting out there and you're you're struggling with this, you may have concerns or questions with everything we've been saying. Good concerns and questions. Concerns like, this sounds too firm, or just sounds too doctrinal. Or questions like, why is it such a big deal if, if we add our works to this message? Or as we talked about more last week, why is it such a big deal if someone takes all this and then adds the fact that Jesus is really there to make you rich? Or why can't we just say that God saves you if you're a decent person? Or He saves everyone who just claims the name of Jesus? And to be sure, from God's Word, we could give good answers to all of those concerns and questions. And last week, we talked a little bit about how those things are not ultimately just unbiblical and wrong, but they're hurtful. But even further back than that, Think about it. What ultimately is the answer to those questions? It's, it's, well, I understand those questions. And they are good questions. But remember, we're not talking about some human-made idea here with this one true gospel. It's not me or any pastor or any church or any Christian or even mainly the apostles who decided to reveal this to be the true gospel. Instead, it's Jesus himself. And if that's the case, then that settles it. Now, this doesn't mean we don't ask questions. We should. And sadly, churches have too often in the past discouraged asking questions. And so let me be crystal clear. Asking questions is great. God made us thinkers. He gave us a rational, big Bible. And the Bible can handle our questions. And so asking questions and seeking answers is a good and beautiful thing. And that's why I do encourage you, men or women, to sign up for those discipleship groups because that's the kind of stuff we'll be doing in those groups. But still, with all that said, above all, with the Bible itself and especially with this gospel message, what we see here in verse 12 is the ultimate issue. Because all other questions aside, the ultimate question is, did Jesus, I mean the risen, real Jesus, reveal this to be his gospel or did he not? And that's why I think verses 11 and 12 are so important after last week and why I'm so thankful Paul included them in what he said here. Because again, after last week, you might have thought this is just so intense. But then this week first in verse 10, we saw we believe in it because we're serving Christ and we're following him. But then here in verses 11 and 12, even more foundational, the reason we saw for why we're so about this one true gospel is because this is Jesus' good news. It's his message, not something we made up. Meaning Jesus is real, God is real, he came, lived, died, rose, and is coming back. And he has told us through his apostles, now in the written word, what his good news for the world actually is. <laughs> or to say it most clearly, and I think this really helps if you want to think of it this way, and if you take anything away, I hope you take away this. God is not only real and came in Christ and accomplished salvation, accomplished But also, and very importantly, it's then ultimately God, it's Jesus himself, who has explained to us what he did and how we receive him in the gospel. It's not ultimately Paul or me or any Christian, but it's God himself who has both accomplished and has explained to us what the true gospel is. And so the whole point is, When anyone or any false teachers then go against that explanation and add something like religious works to it. Or take something away from it like the idea of sin. Or make the gospel and knowing Jesus all about just following rules. Or make the gospel about us becoming rich. Or make it that you only need to claim the name of Jesus to be saved. Or any other serious twistings. It's not that they're just going against some doctrine. It's not that it's just false or even hurtful or even just unbiblical. That's all true. But hear me out. Ultimately, the Bible is saying to us here that the reason why this matters so much is because changing the message like that is going against God, against Jesus, because it's going against what Jesus has explained his good news to be. Because in reality, if you think about it, it is really rare for people who claim the name of Jesus to disagree that Jesus came, lived, died, rose, and is coming back. Instead, if you think about it, what false gospels usually are isn't changing what Jesus did and accomplished in history, but it's changing God's explanation of what those events mean and how we receive them. But in the Bible, what God accomplished and what he's explained his gospel to be are equally important because they make up the message. And so the application of for us in this section is simple. As it was last week, so it is again. Stick, therefore, to the true gospel message. To the good news of Jesus Christ that saves and that the world desperately needs all because it really is revealed by Jesus. It's what God accomplished and has explained to us to be his gospel. And so really is God's gospel. That ends our text in Galatians 1, 10 through 12. And in sum, we saw those two major reasons for why we so love the true gospel and why we believe it. First, because we're seeking God's approval. We're trying to please God. We're owned by Jesus. We're just serving him. And then second, because ultimately, we know Jesus didn't only accomplish salvation, but he's the one who revealed after he accomplished salvation what his message is for us and for the world. And so now as we close, first, I do just encourage you to apply all that however you see fit and as the Spirit guides you. All right, perhaps you hear all that and you think, okay, I really need to work on the uh, approval and pleasing of man part. Or perhaps you're hearing all this this morning and you think you, you really need to know that this isn't any person's message. This is really revealed by Jesus Christ himself and that's why it really matters. Finally, perhaps you're there and you're listening to all this and you think after hearing this, you don't really know Jesus. If that's you, I I do encourage you to come to Christ this morning. He has open arms and he died for sinners like you and me and so trust in him for your forgiveness and your peace. And so again, I do encourage you to apply personally. Do it, whatever you saw here from God's word this morning. But then second is one final thing to close. Let me just close with one verse from the book of Acts that I think connects to all of this. And, and I bring this up because this was actually in our Bible reading this week, for those of you who are doing that with us, but mainly because it is such a fitting summary, one-verse summary to everything we saw here this morning. So this is Acts 23.11. You can turn there if you not want, or you can just listen. It's only one verse. This is Acts 23.11. And as for context, this is still the Apostle Paul, something happening to him, but here he's been imprisoned. And he's recently been trying to defend the one true gospel to all these different crowds that he's brought before. And in such a setting, Jesus one night comforts Paul by saying this. Hear this from Acts 23:11. The following night, the Lord stood by him by Paul and said, "Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Rome and Jerusalem, so you also must testify in Rome." So this is meant to be encouragement to Paul, right? Take courage. And why? Well, because as you heard there, there's really two things. Two things. First, because Jesus still had things that Paul must do. Must. Essentially meaning Jesus is Paul's Lord. (laughs) And and Paul has things that he must continue to do in Jesus' plan, being essentially Jesus' servant. But then also, second, what exactly did you hear that Paul must do? Well, Jesus didn't say that Paul must be the most amazing teacher or the most persuasive or the most impressive Christian. Instead, Jesus told Paul that he must testify to the facts about him. The facts. And it's this that I think is really helpful and complements what we saw in Galatians 1. Because like Paul, we are servants of Christ. And so we must follow Christ and seek to please him and seek his approval. But in the end, why? Why? And, and, and especially in the gospel message itself, why do we care so much about this message? Well, because this message is about facts, meaning it's true. It's the facts of what Jesus did, and it's the facts of what Jesus has revealed his gospel to be. And so for us, churches, therefore, keep on loving the one true message of Jesus Christ, which is salvation now and forever through what he did by grace alone, through faith alone. Let's keep loving and believing in Jesus in that message because we're his servants and because it's God's message. And that being the case, because then we also know that this is the message that saves us, that the world needs to be saved, and it's what glorifies our Savior, Jesus Christ.